The SFU Art Collection was established soon after the university's founding in 1965. It consists of over 5,800 modern contemporary artworks and continues to grow. The collection is unique in its capacity to trace the complex social and cultural life connected to the west coast of Canada and remains open to new inquiries and stories as they surface. Listening to Pictures, Artists on the SFU Art Collection is a 10-episode radio program featuring voices of artists with lived experience on the West Coast. After selecting a work from the collection that is meaningful to them, each participant was invited to develop a unique response to that artwork, ranging from meditative homages and barbed political reflections to playful sonic experiments. Listening to Pictures was inspired by a 1964 CBC radio program of the same name, wherein subscribers were mailed postcards picturing works of art that were discussed on air each week by the renowned art historian Dr. Jean Sutherland Boggs. The original Listening to Pictures connected a community of listeners dispersed across a vast geography. SFU Gallery's iteration leverages the power of collective listening to draw us together to record and relate untold stories by and about artists, and to encourage new encounters with the artworks in the SFU Art Collection. Listening to Pictures, Artists on the SFU Art Collection, will air on CJSF Radio, that's 90.1 FM, on Thursdays at 2 p.m. until August 18th, 2022 and will be archived as podcasts on the SFU Gallery's website. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. It's been a while, dear reader, since last we spoke. I write to you from a high tower. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had ambitions for putting out one of these every couple of weeks, and then it was once a month, and then... <laughs> yeah, it used to be like, okay, we're doing every two weeks, and then it, that never happened, let's be honest. It never, never happened. happened. <laughs> There's just so, like, so much prestige TV. But we're doing what we can. We are. Yeah, let's aim for once a month and say thank you to all of the readers who are sticking with us. Um, hopefully this is going to meet you in some kind of late August sort of, I don't know what, what happens in late August, depression about the oncoming school year. Mm, Back to school depression. I remember it well. (laughs) Like Sunday night depression, but so much more. But a month. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of low-grade anxiety, I hear you spoke to Ben Davis this time. And I know that you two go back. Will you tell me a little bit about him? He's an old friend, it's fair to say at this point. He was my editor in the early days of my doing this kind of work um, at Blue N Art Info. Uh, but that was like a very low grade, I mean, talk about low grade, but it was it was a depressing environment and um, <laughs> and a very sort of anxious one. We were meant to be turning out like 10 to 20 pieces per week as editors and writers and uh, anyway, he was at the main desk in New York and, and kind of showed me what an editor can be um, back then. I mean, I was running the Canadian desk, so to speak, and he was a real counsel for me when I was trying to do things that were risky or getting blowback. He was just a very steady center to a frenetically paced outfit. And I've known him to be that steady center in all the years since. 
He's the longstanding national art critic at Artnet News, where he's also a full-time editor. And his pieces, whether they're for Artnet or he's also written for The Village Voice and Brooklyn Rail, tend to focus on the long view of the contemporary moment, um, which is not, as we know, an easy precipice to scale right now. I know him from publishing 9.5 Theses on Art and Class in 2013, which I read at your urging, and you've continued <laughs> to, <laughs> to talk about since. That's true. The felt effects of that book, at least for me, have been long. I know Ben feels like it's um, become a very dated book quickly, but I would mm. disagree. Um, Does he talk about that in the interview? I think we touch on it. It was more of a, a kitchen sink conversation that we had a couple of years ago at a house party. And he was like rubbing his forehead about that book. And I remember just in that moment saying like, God, no, quite the opposite. You know, I returned to it really frequently. I remember at the time, Momus reviewed it. It was one of the first things we had up on our site mm. um, in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to Ben about the book too in an interview on Momus. And that collection of essays clarified some really important thinking for me I'm sure many others as well, about how class gets articulated in contemporary art and about the position of artist labor against capital. And I think many of those essays have just grown richer over time and more prescient seeming, especially the kinds of conversations we're having right now culturally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I'm touching on that as a bit of a prognosticator in that regard. Yeah, there's something about the writing that is quite insistent on its own accessibility, I would say. Um, he's a conversational writer sometimes. And I, I remember a friend recently calling his writing hospitable. And I think that's, hmm. that's the right word. <laughs> I think I would describe my writing as hostile. <laughs> <laughs> those are the two poles we can shoot for. Yeah, Either exactly. Way, that magnetic. seems like a good, <laughs> that seems like a good uh, binary or at least some kind of like Keynesian scale of tone. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but yeah, so this conversation is about his new book, which I hope doesn't find him a few years from now rubbing his forehead at a house party. Uh, but it's called Art in the Afterculture. So can you tell us a little bit about it, Sky? Mm -hmm. This is another collection of essays, and it variously focuses on Oh, gosh. I mean, the aestheticization of capital, precedents for how the cultural left can eat itself. That was a particularly um, eye-opening essay about a president that we can kind of root in Brazil in the 1960s that um, we can line up against the contemporary moment in the U.S. and Canada. Uh -huh. um, he also talks about the roots of cultural appropriation, which are particularly Canadian, funnily enough. So that's also a really, you know, for my readership, a particularly exciting piece to read. And the context collapse generally of our critical reception. Um, so covering everything from AI in contemporary art to, you know, ambient shifts in connoisseurship um, that have informed how artists are marketing themselves and just generally how we're contextualizing their political positions, their output um, critically. Um, he says really meaningfully at one point that we greet the discourse before we greet the subject now. And I think that's a really relevant um, node to pick up on for a conversation around criticism. I think I would want to know more about what he means by we, uh, who is allowed to greet discourse before subject. But I know that he's been working on a variation of this book for a while. And um, he visited you, I think, in Montreal a few years ago, and he was already sort of working on it there. 
Yeah, that's true. I, I have a very clear memory um, of us walking sort of on an overpass in like minus 30 degree weather talking about, we were trying to get an art, to an art opening. I definitely took us on the wrong path, like quite literally. <laughs> but I remember that. I remember that walk for like my cheeks stinging as he's talking about a book on appropriation. Um, things intensified pretty quickly in the years that followed that with Me Too and quote unquote cancel culture. And so I think those various social upheavals had him revising the book for a couple of years, then the pandemic. And I mean, I, it's something that we really touch on quite a bit. I try to focus the conversation on like, how do you write a book alongside a full-time job? How do you start a book again? How do you take something back down to the studs? You know, yeah. I know, for instance, we talk a bit about the working title of this book, which was Making Art in Terrible Times. Um, mm. And between us, I think that's like a better title. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's been a, a really long and perhaps messy evolution for this um, collection of essays. But I think that actually tests their mettle a bit um, in the offing. Like the, these are these are stand up texts that I think uh, many of us really need to sort of ground ourselves in some of these conversations that are swirling around us. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting note about how do you write a book alongside a full time job. We were just attending the first day of the Emerging Critics Residency led by Jessica Lynn, and she was speaking a little bit about her her desire to go back to grad school to focus on a manuscript to sort of change her, as I understand it, change her relationship to time and process mm-hmm. and how those two things can come together towards work, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um and this was sort of a, a solution that she had she had come to around it. But I mean, we know Ben Davis to be one of those very rare critics who has a full-time job <laughs> as a critic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it, it's funny, often in applications for the Emerging Critics Residence, we get people saying like, I don't have a job as an art critic. Like I need Mm. to know how to access this, this industry. And it's like, well, (laughs) like that doesn't exist anymore, except for these sorts of very specific cases, uh, Ben's position being one. And yeah, I mean, it's just like so foreign to my understanding of what it means to write about art professionally. And I think probably for any sort of like interested or involved listener, We've been talking about doing this for a while, but maybe we want to have a moment of real talk about how we make this podcast. Well, we've established that it's haphazardly, (laughs) (laughs) and that has a lot to do with um, a lack of material support. So, you know, we do funnel our energies into um, these residencies and other programs that we're running for mentorship because there's a greater and more material return. Um, these podcasts remain so important to us. And I was just in New York for an event that iBeam was hosting uh, to do with their Fractal Fellowship, with which we've been a partner through our Critical Writing Fellow. And I, it was just really touching to me how many people came up to me at that reception and, and talked about the podcast or cited episodes that they've listened to that had been in, impactful. And many of them asking, you know, what's the next one and who, you know, when will it be out? And a part of me <laughs> had to sort of resist the biting feeling of like, well, we can't continue to do this um, with no material support. Given that there's an audience, I think some of that can be bridged if we can just be a little bit more explicit about like what it costs to do. So I thought this could be a good conversation for us to have about just a brief breakdown of what each episode costs us to make Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. 
And I think it also goes along with uh, the conversation I was having with Dana Kopel and a conversation that I, I try to have as often as possible, which is to like be very explicit about the financial reality of, of cultural labor. Like I've listened to podcasts before where they've said, these are the things that we pay for. I have never heard a podcast say, this is how much we pay for the things we pay for, which is, I think, like an interesting, it's an interesting barrier uh, not to bridge, right? To say like, we're paying everybody, don't worry, but I'm not going to be too specific about how much. Be (laughs) specific. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just to take it one inch further. Okay, so maybe I would like to start by saying that we pay our incredible editor, Jacob Irish, $400 per episode. I'd like to do a uh, a very sincere shout out to Jacob Irish right now, one of the only men in my life that I am okay with telling me what to do. I would say <laughs> perhaps the only man in my life. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who? Who's in competition? It's <laughs> like a prairie landscape. <laughs> and it's Jacob Irish being like, just, hey, maybe just ad- adjust your sound levels a little bit. And I'd be like, sure, of course. <laughs> He's really wonderful. And yes. you pay him. Mm-hmm. Um, we pay for transcriptions for all of our past episodes, and we're going to make those scripts available on the site very soon. We pay a designer and programmer annual fees in the mm-hmm. hundreds. And then there's the various platforms like Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. We pay to host monthly. We have a technician and producer, Chris Andrews, who helps us disseminate the podcasts. We pay him $30 an hour for that work. Also commission on any ads sold, uh, as he's also our sales director. And most importantly, we pay our contributors, uh, which is not something that every podcast does, but it's important to us to respect our contributors as exactly that. So we pay them uh, currently $150 US per episode. I think it's important to say, like, it's not just not every podcast that doesn't pay their contributors. I think Mm. in general, anybody who is being interviewed is not being paid. Um, That's very true. And there are journalistic reasons for that, right? Like if it is in fact journalism, then paying your subject can complicate the process. But um, But this is not all the president's men. Like, (laughs) 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 journalistic ethics. If it is, I'm the Dustin Hoffman. You can be Meryl Streep. But anyways, so all of this is like, you know, this is kind of bare bones. I mean, I think we would Mm -hmm. 100% enjoy and desire to pay everybody a lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I get paid. You do. Momus pays you about, well, not about, $50 an hour for about 50 hours of work per month. Um, And I'd say about eight of those per month goes towards the podcast. So, yeah, roughly $400 per episode. And Sky, do you pay yourself? (laughs) Uh, No, not really, at least not for this podcast. The feeling is a bit like picking up the crumbs on the dining room table. That's sort of how I'm I'm envisioning my own take home from this so far, which does contribute to it feeling um, sometimes like a bit of a hobby arm of the operation. And Uh as I say, I I would prefer to centralize it because I think for our audience, it is. It's a central output of what we're doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels a central part of like how I'm able to engage really Mm -hmm. in contemporary art and, and certainly art writing. So roughly we're looking at like a $700 to $800 to produce. And I think we would love to make it more like a thousand um, Mm -hmm. to pay everybody properly. Mm -hmm. That's right. Per episode. You can donate through our website, um, our Patreon, um, Patreon slash Momus Arts, whether that's monthly or just a one-time donation, which you can also make to me directly just by reaching out. Yeah, we'd be so grateful for a bit more reader support on this particular arm of what we're doing. And and all the thanks in the world for those who are listening. If you can't contribute financially, please consider giving us a share or a review. That also goes real yeah. far to giving us a sense of um, continuity and encouragement around this work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with that, I want to throw it to the interview. So this is Sky Gooden talking to Ben Davis, who reads from the introduction to Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy. It's been an extraordinarily disorienting past few years to write about art. The only thing that has grown faster than the demands on art has been doubt that art can respond adequately to those demands. In some ways, art feels more visible and important than ever, and others, more embattled, small, and peripheral. This book's title, Art in the Afterculture, comes from the two short fictional texts about possible futures that frame it. To state the obvious, these are extrapolations of the possibilities I see gathering in the present, discussed from different angles in the other eight essays here. The idea of an afterculture, a culture whose forms and functions are reshaped by cataclysmic events, resonated with me partly because the recent past has seen such destabilizing changes for art, but also because these changes seem to be accumulating, concatenating the outline of something bigger coming into view. My last book, 9.5 Theses on Art and Class, was published in 2013. In retrospect, this seems like the exact moment when what Marxist literary theorist Raymond Williams would describe as a new structure of feeling was emerging in culture, a particular quality of social experience and relationship which gives the sense of a generation or of a period. Obviously, you can pick any given year and it will have some particular quality. But some chunks of time feel more particular than others. Usually this happens when simultaneous shifts in multiple areas of life play off of one another to create a sense of a new whole, a new overall context. Thus, the 1930s stand out as particularly distinctive in U.S. culture because of the background of the Great Depression, but also because of the emergence of photojournalism, the golden age of radio, the advent of sound film, and the excitement around public murals, alongside the explosion of industrial unionism, anti-fascism, and mass politics rooted in Marxism. The 1960s were defined by the post-war boom, the Cold War, but also by the rise of color TV, color photography, pop and conceptual art, the black arts movement, and mass youth culture as new poles of attraction, alongside the galvanizing influence of new left social movements. Williams used the term structure of feeling to describe changes in sensibility that precede clearly defined ideology. Certainly the way the larger culture feels has shifted more rapidly and the institutions of art have kept up as the field has been pressured along multiple fronts simultaneously by giant ambient shifts in the infrastructure of society. Economically, the extremes of the new Gilded Age set the tone of the 2010s. 
The New Left Review, Susan Watkins, went so far as to write that a new regime of accumulation emerged from the solutions to the financial crisis, dedicated to a single-minded focus on keeping asset prices high, leading to wildly divergent class outcomes. The fortunes of the investor class recovered spectacularly, while everyone else more or less suffered a lost decade, even amid what was technically the U.S.'s longest period of economic expansion. This divergence meant that the spectacle of wealth took up ever more mental and physical space, increasing the popular sense of being both dependent on its whims and oppressed by them. By 2017, the three wealthiest U.S. families, the Walton, Koch, and Mars dynasties, had more wealth than the bottom half of the population, busting all-time records. Ultra-low interest rates and low global profit margins pushed mountains of money into speculative investments, including art, but also bid up prices of whole new areas of luxury consumption detached from old ideas of sophistication. Cars, fossils, memorabilia, sneakers, toys, trading cards, and various new digital assets. Luxury real estate ate up huge space in major cities, detonating fights over gentrification. Museums, the limited support from an attenuated state, independence, and the super wealthy were slammed by protests over awful patrons, revolts over racism and sexism, and unionization drives. Self-image art as a social good was collapsing under the weight of capitalism's dysfunction. Meanwhile, in media, the 2010s saw the takeover of digital culture. 9.5 theses on art in class only briefly mention the web or technology as elements shaping the audience for art, but the topic has since become all-devouring. A decade ago, any show at a major art gallery, and definitely any show at a museum, had an easier claim to importance because those were the necessary platforms for art to find an audience and to be taken seriously. But the accessibility of digital culture created new platforms for showcasing creativity and new pathways to visibility, eroding the assumed authority of existing institutions. I worked at various art websites during this entire time. Part of my sense of the change attention space comes from the grind of working in digital media. The online attention economy is very crowded and therefore very spiky. Its highs are much higher than ever before, but the average level of interest much lower, so that a minor controversy over a botched art restoration halfway around the world can occupy huge amounts of bandwidth, even as coverage of what's going on in local gallery ceilings languishes. As a 2017 study of changing audience expectations that I quote in Chapter 3 put it, the definition of culture has democratized nearly to the point of extinction. It's no longer about high versus low or culture versus entertainment. It's about relevance or irrelevance. The idea of context collapse, credited to researcher Dana Borg, has been used particularly in studies of social media, where you're unable to control the meaning of images or utterances as they circulate among dispersed and unpredictable audiences. Context-determined meaning is an idea so important to post-1960s art that it is number 32 in the book of 101 Things to Learn in Art School. The fact that so much of art is now experienced first as an image via network media, the context tends to be mercurial, poses a serious challenge to deeply ingrained assumptions about how art makes meaning in the world. The changed media environment interacts, finally, with a third factor, the new kinds of social movements that erupted onto the scene in this period. I first had the sense of a new structure of feeling during the 2014 Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Seeing the call and response of grassroots political memes from on-the-ground protesters and distant supporters sharing images of solidarity actions and finding creative ways to attack biased media coverage, it seemed clear that this was important culture, both building immediate struggle and leaving a larger, lasting impact. Because of its openness, immediacy, and urgency, such digital activist culture raised the bar for what felt culturally important in general, even in traditional cultural spaces. 
9.5 Thesis on Art and Class was published in the still unfolding fallout of the Great Recession. Occupy Wall Street had caught fire in 2011, and a fresh kind of networked movement responding to economic injustice. Its embers were still throwing off sparks when my book was published, but the decade to come will be defined by one explosive political crisis after another. The alarms of scientists, the agitation of young activists, and escalating natural disasters made it clear that climate change was not a thing of the future, but was defining the present. The shocking election of Donald Trump in 2016 led to a sustained sense of daily outrage that irradiated the cultural conversation. The global pandemic in 2020 threw society into an extraordinary period of confusion and despair. The immense Black Lives Matter demonstrations of that same year amounted to the largest burst of protest in U.S. history. In 1970, the art critic Lucy Lepard had reflected on how the crises of the late 1960s had thrown the social value of art into relief. She referenced the big media events of her moment, writing, Abby Hoffman, the Weatherman bombings, Charles Manson, and the storming of the Pentagon are far more effective as radical art than anything artists have yet concocted. The event structure of such works gives them a tremendous advantage over the most graphic of the graphic arts. The theater was the deadest art form of all during the 60s, the visual arts may be scheduled for the same fate in the 70s. The only sure thing is artists will go on making art, and that some of that art will not always be recognized as art. Some of it may even be called politics. A similar sense of aesthetic experience being both overshadowed by the spectacle of current events and pressed into new connection with them marks the recent past. This is a book of essays on distinct debates from the recent past. They can be read individually, but there are overarching themes. The first is the attempt to theorize how inexorably intensifying pressures in a larger society have placed new types of demands on art and pushed it into more and more anxious configurations. That's the capitalist crisis part of my subtitle. The second is the argument for the need to think concretely about the role that the cultural sphere plays in either building or blocking the kinds of social movements needed to turn the tide. That's the cultural strategy part. But even for those who don't completely share my political sense of the world, I hope the book offers something. Specifically, I hope it offers a sense of the excitement for me of its subject. It is a scary and disappointing time for art as it is a scary and disorienting time in general. It is also an exciting time. New energies are emerging. The shifts in how culture functions might also mean that it can find new audiences and be put to work in new ways. There are many places that we could start this conversation from, um, but I maybe want to start by hooking into the original title that I've seen floated around for this book, which is Making Art in Terrible Times, and also just drop us back into the last conversation I had with you about this book, which was in 2019, and I think it was a very different animal that you were trying to harness at that point. So maybe just talk to us about the road that this book has been on, just to begin. Yeah, well, uh, I think I think best in responding to specific interventions. Um, and essay, the essay form is the best way in. I, I, I originally had this working title, Making Art in Terrible Times. I actually liked the fact that the title sounded kind of uh, lowbrow. Like, it sounded a little bit like a self-help book. You know, I feel like the table's been kind of flipped over and, and people are looking for a map. So I was thinking about the power of, you know, something that, that sounded like it offered very uh, concrete, almost like self-help advice. That's where that title came from. In the end, I just didn't think it was like an honest title. You know, the book is about something slightly bigger than, than art making. Parts of it are about what it means to be an art maker and 
think about art or like art. And, and part of it is very self-consciously about political culture and a, a slightly broader definition. So it started out as a collection of pre-existing essays, as did my last book. And like my last book, sort of evolved into a more edited thing. Like, like oh, during the pandemic, when I almost abandoned the book, incidentally, just feeling like the world had gotten so terrible that anything I had to say about art would feel very irrelevant, reflecting the mindset of that Lucy Lepard quote from my introduction. But I came back to it and sort of reworked them into eight pieces that I think still have eight themes from the, from the recent past. It's interesting to think about uh, occupying a role as, I mean, across essays, yes, but um, a single author, a single position that you're inhabiting between these two books, that position will have been rocked many times over. Um, and so, you know, when I was listening to an interview earlier today with you talking about this book as, um, you know, in as much as you are uh, traversing really urgent, uh, urgently positioned themes around kind of a crash between culture and capitalism and a usurping of art for uh market-oriented gains and, and so much else that you're wrapping your arms around in this book, it sounds as though you're also trying to resist a, a role that the critic can be slotted into as um, one who's here to tell us why something is worth our time. And rather, you want to sort of re-evaluate, reconstruct a context of meaning. Um, you put it nicely as sitting at a slight eccentric angle to the way that media culture trains us. I wonder, you know, if you can talk to us a bit more about the motivation and also how you occupy that that role of sort of steward or forest guide through the bramble, um, given that the last <laughs> few years have probably rocked your sense of authority. <laughs> I particularly these days think about myself as somebody who's in the bramble with people, you know, trying to figure it out together. One of the things that, that is a sub-theme in the book is, uh, you know, what is the specificity of a conversation about art? Does it bring anything to the table to even have a specific category set aside? Because one of the things that happened in the last 10 years is that the audience for our online expanded greatly. But in that process, um, it's sort of set aside-ness. The, the fact that it's consumed an institution dedicated to it or a publication dedicated to it um, has been eroded because a lot of people are consuming their cultural commentary in a stream with a lot of other things. That combined with the political situation has meant that there's been a tendency to collapse cultural journalism and cultural writing into some sort of current events reporting. And that was like a pressure that even, you know, when I started writing about art, you know, at the beginning of the last decade, you could already really feel those tensions, those pressures on what it meant to, to be an art writer. You could feel um, really viscerally in terms of feedback and attention in the conversation, how Art writing was an intervention into various other kinds of political, cultural, technological debates in a way that maybe it already had, but you couldn't see just when it's a conversation in, in uh, old-fashioned dead tree media. I, I did a column when I was working at a website called Art Info, actually that you also work for, Scott, um, called Interventions that very specifically came out of this thought that it's like, talk about art as it's intersecting and colliding with the current news cycle. And uh, that was a very specific form of writing that I saw as emerging at the beginning of the last decade. One of the things that's happened is that that sort of writing and way of thinking about things sort of took over. Um, and there's just an awful lot of art writing that is not about 
the art object at all is, is about a sort of meta conversation about where it stands within the larger uh, political currents of the day or, or um, in relationship to, to anything besides like very specific questions of like what it is as an object is a specific form of experience and so on. So I do think that there's a lot of importance in holding space for some of these questions about what art is actually expanding need for thinking about that specificity. So within a couple of different conversations or essays in the book, I do think there's an important thing that's basically just about defending like an art critic's way of thinking or a specific kind of critical thinking um, about art as a practice that I think contributes to, for instance, a political conversation um, in a way that's, that's important to think about. It isn't, it isn't like an either or you're either, thinking about art as a politically engaged process or thinking about it as some kind of autonomous art for art's sake thing. I think there's a much more complex relationship between those two things. I think a lot of the artistic pathologies and political pathologies of the recent past emerge from the the inability or the acceleration of the conversation has mixed all this stuff up together so that people are having a conversation that uh, isn't satisfying on any level. <laughs> as a, as a political conversation, as an artistic conversation, just kind of a mishmash. And so I, I think about in various different small ways, kind of holding space to like, to like uh, slow down the conversation a little and think about the different specific levels of what it means to think about art in society, in the world today. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that the panel that you um, held with uh, Julieta Aranda and Naeem Hyman. That conversation is indicative, I think, of conversations that this book might invite, which are to sort of use this long road that you've paved through these essays as a launching point to talk about the road further still ahead and to kind of pitch ourselves into a state of prognosticating the future through the pell of cultural content. And I I can see that as being a frustration maybe that you're met with um, being sort of treated as a seer um, for, you know, what art can do. <laughs> is that, I mean, is that has that been an experience of yours in talking about this collection of essays so far? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I guess I just feel, I do feel a need to be like really modest about what I'm offering. It's, you know, part of, part of what I was saying about the original title, you know, um, Making Art in Terrible Times is a very definite and therefore probably more marketable title. It's like, here's, here's what it means to make art if you're terrified as we all should be of the trends we see going through the world. I think there's, there's, um, you know, that, that's something people, people really want. Art in the Afterculture is sort of deliberately, it's a more open title. You know, I don't, you know, there's something new emerging. Um, I think, uh, we can be a part of uh, diagnosing what that is. It may be hope we're lucky to be part of shaping what that is, but uh, it's going to be a much, you know, that's going to be the product of forces that are to a certain extent out of our control. I think I, I, I really just feel like I'm holding space for critical conversation. You know, when I started writing about art criticism, art forum was the bad object. And that was what people would beat up on, you know, this kind of starchy theory criticism that sort of substituted a discussion of Foucault for a discussion of art and, uh, and use kind various forms of academic theory as sort of a, if you want to be really negative as a, as a branding operation for various forms of luxury 
consumption. Um, and wasn't very uh, satisfying as a philosophical conversation or as an artistic conversation. Um, I'm actually kind of nostalgic for that moment now. You know, I like that's what did in, in some ways, that's what got me into writing about art is that I was really engaged with ideas. I thought I studied cultural theory. And when I picked up art forum, I was like, oh, here's a here's a material practice that intervenes in the world where people really care about these ideas. Um, and I can like I can be part of this conversation. When you teach in an art program, for instance, you really sense how much students need ideas. You know, they're really hungry for ideas because, uh, you know, they, they're investing a lot of time and effort and, and labor and uh, hope into the process of training themselves to be an artist. And that has to mean more than just something nice, decorative stuff, I think, for a lot of people. So you see how important it is just on a human level to connect with ideas. And, and the last 10 years, because of not just technology, technological change, but that's part of it, um, is really um, sharply eroded academic credibility, those kind of institutions of intellectual authority that, that uh, were the base of that kind of criticism and has moved things more towards, you know, like a form of hot take cultural journalism where every, like I said, everything is measured against the, political trending topics of the day and um, is once again, is neither satisfying as politics nor, nor as art, but um, uh, in, I'm, I'm interested in holding space for, for some kind of engagement with theory, even though I, you know, my frustrations with theory and I try to very self-consciously write you know, in a sort of approachable way. The word that springs to mind, and actually it was a word that a friend of mine used when describing your writing the other day, so I want to give credit where it's due. The novelist Jocelyn Parr called your writing um, hospitable a couple days ago when I was talking to her about this interview coming up. And I thought that was such a generous and sort of apt and perfect word for the kind of voice that you've arrived at, which is... Um, certainly shy of like, you know, didacticism through some of this um, thick material, it's, but, it, but it remains very inviting, accessible and arid. Um, and it seems to me like it's a voice that you've inhabited for a very long time. Like maybe it's your, it, it's your comfort level to be writing in that voice and doesn't take much strain. But I, I wonder how easy or hard it is to, to sit in that, that hospitality. Oh, yeah, it's really hard. I, I mean, uh, it's not an easy... It's not easy. And, and, and I mean, you know, I don't always, you know, I've written for a while. And um, something I think about a lot, particularly in relation to the technological conversation, is, you know, what a piece of writing is and how much of me is in it. And um, there's obviously a lot of me in it. But I think the Internet writing mm -hmm. tends to role model a, a, mm -hmm. a form of writing that is less mediated than uh, a form, you know, like if you're writing for a newspaper, I've written for the New York Times and, and, you know, when the fact checker goes over something, you really realize how much you don't know, <laughs> you mm. know, that there are like, <laughs> that, that, that it's really useful having other voices in the mix and that uh, a piece of writing ends up being a distillation of yourself, but with a lot of other people in the mix. Like it's not an unmediated opinion. Mm -hmm. in, in, a lot of other people in inhabit inhabitant space. That's something that I, I think is really valuable. And I think it's at a slight extent your angle to the way everyone's encouraged to be a kind of an individual operator entrepreneur um, right now, or is forced to be forced to be that way. 
Um, I just think that in terms of general writing strategy, I, I guess I just always think that um, you have to, uh, you can't take your audience for granted and you have to be with them on the journey and always like go back to the idea that someone might be hearing about something for the first time. Um, and that people's time is precious so that every piece of writing should be essentially clear, should, uh, introduce one new idea, should be well-written enough to justify people's time going through it. And ideally have one joke that, that, that people remember. That's, that's, that's like a very basic outline of, of a aspiration, um, for a piece of, a piece of writing. But all of that is, 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 takes a lot of labor. You know, that's the, yeah. that's the, the dark secret of all of this stuff is that, is that, um, most of the, what people complain about is stylistic problems with contemporary art writing are actually labor time problems. You know, mm -hmm. you can just apply like a basic Marxist labor value calculation to it. It's just that a really good piece of critical writing is really labor intensive. Um, it involves going to a gallery, seeing something in an embodied way, ideally like reading everything else that was written about that thing, reconstructing the way the artist thinks about it, writing something, turning it in, having it be edited, probably rewriting it in my case a couple of times. <laughs> and that's just really labor intensive and it doesn't really justify itself in a, in a, in a purely, you know, uh, I think it justifies itself in the longer term in that that form of writing, that form of critical writing of adding ideas um, to the conversation of like, building building a thoughtful frame for an artist or artwork that connects it to what it means to be alive now or puts it in its mm -hmm. historical context that adds a lot of value down the line you know that's a mm -hmm. in the long there's like a long tail of that 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 um if we lose that then we essentially lose art as a whole it's it's really really the critical frame is what defines things as art but this is just one of the smaller for, forms of, of this pattern within our ever degrading capitalist life world, but it fits the pattern of, you know, society doesn't want to pay for its long-term reproduction. It only wants to pay for what pays off in the short term. So, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely. It's much more convenient to write very rapid responses to, um, to other things people have written that are in the news cycle. If you're just talking about pure, um, labor inputs versus profit outputs. That's like the more profitable version. But in the long term, this is a case where the system slowly short circuits itself in long term mm -hmm. sustainability. Mm -hmm. To give um, listeners a sense of what this book holds, I'd love to get into a couple examples and have you talk just a little bit about the precedents that you're setting around certain flashpoints that are hitting us now. One of the most powerful that you set up for us is in Brazil in the uh, 1960s and the kind of absorption um, of the cultural left and backlash that resulted. I wonder if you can sort of set the stage for us a little bit and give us a sense of how that node works to a larger point. You're talking about the second essay in the book, which is called um, Elite Capture and Radical Chic, where I sort I'm thinking through uh, politics of the museum, the politics of contest in the museum, the politics of cultural transformation, which have obviously been really important in the recent um, time period. And the essay is substantially contemporary. It, it grows out of things that I 
have really thought about or been writing about since um, Brexit, since the conversation around Brexit, uh, and then around Trump's election and our response to that and, and the way that has raised the new kinds of demands on museums. I think that there's a pattern, when, uh, I think it arises from, for some of the same reasons, that this arises in writing, this like uh, turn towards contemporary events um, as the world gets more alarming, the stakes are raised for cultural producers. So just to be in the conversation, to feel relevant about what you're doing, you have to like orient on, on, on that. But every time that there's a contemporary crisis, I really do. I feel like people's um, within the arts first reaction is what is the art version of this critique, you know, to take Im- immigrant rights, for instance, you know, uh, persecuting and then like turn that into a conversation about the museum. That's not necessarily always bad, but I, I do think that there's a certain strategic piece that needs to be talked about. The Brazil example that I use comes from the 1960s about the tremendous flowering of left-wing cultural activity that came after the rise of the dictatorship. Like there was this, there was like a lot of the Tropicalia movement, for instance, a lot of the breakthroughs in interactive art um, that we now, we now recently have been really uh, celebrated and canonized, a lot of breakthroughs in interactive theater, um, all flourished in this mid-60s time period, um, which is after actually the rise of a U.S.-sanctioned dictatorship. Um, and there's a real sense in looking back at that period, you know, commentators have looked at it and and seen it as this period when people working in arts and culture in Latin America, in Brazil, um, looked at revolutionizing the arts as their means of changing the conversation. And then in retrospect, late 60s, there's a closing of the dictatorship and basically they polished off the students and the peasants and they just don't see the need anymore to tolerate left-wing cultural satire. Um, And it sort of, in some ways, turns out that you can be losing in a larger sense, well, winning in the on the cultural terrain, because the cultural terrain is to a certain extent set up to be an escape valve for liberal progressive energies. Um, it concentrates intellectuals and the creative people have a very specific um, social position, and so leads to kind of a mixed conclusion that you can like these are important spaces to command, obviously. They are under attack. There's a right-wing shift all over the world uh, where, where the, the presumably liberal tolerance that was sort of native to the international art scene is under attack. People rightly defend that. But it's a very complicated question because some of the history is really, um, as I see it, um, that the rise of a sort of progressive command of, of the arts and uh, the art conversation is really the flip side of the entire process since the 1970s. As the default conversation in arts has gotten more progressive, the default conversation in politics and the economy has gotten more conservative. And you have to think about those things as a whole, as a, as a totality. Um, and I don't want to leave that in a totally despairing or depressing place um, because I, I think it greatly matters what artists do. I think artists command symbolic power that, you know, when mixed with other kinds of social forces can do a lot of important things. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a strategic part of the puzzle that I think um, 
is worth introducing into the conversation because I get this sense at a lot of art events that it's like there's a missing person in the conversation that there are these art um, gestures that are sort of presented as if they're informing somebody of a cause or a set of facts, documentary facts about bad things that are going on in the world. And that there's like a missing person who's supposed to be educated. You know, that that mode of actual enjoyment, I don't know, the psychoanalytic terms, you know, the subject supposed to enjoy. There's a fantasy subject. There's someone else there. You look at it as like, I agree from that. I agree with this so much. And I'm really glad that someone else will be informed by it. And I always just think that that some of these spaces might be better used in kind of testing the the limits of of the actual audience that is there, rather than and the limits of their assumptions, rather than assuming an audience member who, you know, usually the person that they're forming or the kind of uh, or you're schooling are these kind of like hardened conservative people who are openly nativist and so on, who aren't there, who don't, who don't have any respect for those cultural institutions in the first place. So I, I just see there as there's like a little bit of a miss, missing piece in the conversation that it's worth um, um, entering into the discussion. Sure. Although if we, we discount the missing person, you know, the hoped for audience and sort of silo ourselves into, um, well, what what you were just sort of pointing to, right? The 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 risk on the other side is that we're only having a conversation with ourselves for ourselves, um, and that those conversations short circuit over time and need to be restarted somehow from the beginning of the tape. Um, you talk about cultural pro- appropriation actually sort of rooting into a Canadian debate. Canada's really the origin of a lot of modern conversations about this. Yeah, totally. It put me in mind of an artist here, Pamela Mathrew, who discovered some videotapes at a, a Sally Ann shop years after they'd been deposited there. It would take her, I think, eight years to get the technology to play the tapes. And then she would discover that they were um, panels from the AGO in Toronto, one of the biggest museums in Canada, um, where Homi Baba was speaking with artists Jamali Hassan and Monica Kin-Gagnon. It was called um, Identity in a Foreign Place. And it was sort of auxiliary programming that had to do with an exhibition at the AGO in 1993 called Perspectives or perspective rather, that had been sort of really shot on by the leading critic at the Globe and Mail. And so it's like sparked off this conversation that I'll just pull a quote out for you because um, it feels like it could have been been written today. This is Homi K. Baba speaking. The art and the culture of emergent groups who choose to find their affiliation through issues of race or gender or sexuality or AIDS, those groups and their art is labeled in the negative, belated sense as some kind of medieval culture of complaint. And this easy attribution of victimage is deeply troubling to me because it isn't aware of the new social sense of community as it emerges. It isn't aware of how those kinds of communities are creating very particular notions of themselves. So that's maybe a lot to sort of posit on your on this question. But just to say there are these presidents that continue to cycle up. And um, it's interesting that Canada seems to be sort of um, a particular case in point, although not not unique historically, these conversations that really did have public presentation, public funding. And yet, you know, it takes an artist today finding them in the dustbin for for any of this to be brought back up to surface. You know, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I have a chapter about cultural appropriation and it's called cultural appropriation and cultural materialism because 
what really interests me is not so much finding a um, formula. Uh, you know, a lot of the debates about cultural appropriation are about who has the right to do what. Um, I don't think there's a global formula for that. I think that's pretty obvious. About the voice appropriation wars in Canada, which goes through the debates that were had between 1989 and around uh, the early mid-90s, and actually like looks taxonomizes all the debates that people were having mm-hmm. and points out it's like, well, actually people aren't having one conversation, having 17 different conversations that are philosophical, economic, um, have to do with social justice, have to do with current political debates. They're all being mashed up in this one conversation. What I'm interested in is more, you know, what are the material factors? What changes in society? What changed in the last 10 years that we suddenly had this like very dramatic intensification of debates about cultural appropriation? It's very interesting to go back to the origin of some of the voice appropriation, which uh, was the early names for cultural appropriation coming out of the debates in Canada, that at the time, people were very clear this was a new sense of the term that was coming onto the scene. Scholars engaged in the 90s debates in Canada, you know, talk about how they were literally writing books using the term cultural appropriation in this sense that comes from cultural studies coming out of England, which is about minority cultures um, that there's a tendency by a dominant culture to ascribe to them fixed cultural characteristics, like there was a black culture. And that the term cultural appropriation is originally about how, no, that people, there, there wasn't a fixed culture, that people tended to appropriate aspects of other culture, including dominant white culture, and repurpose it and make hybrid identities out of that. And it was like mm-hmm, a composite mm-hmm. term until, until the 90s. Um, and then there's this very sharp reversal in the debates in Canada. My chapter goes through a lot of different material pa- factors, uh, just the general intensification of the commodification of, of culture. I think that's really important. I think it's a big factor. It has to do with, with the disintegration of the media um, and the rise of platform capitalism and how it captured the conversation. But the importance of Canada to me is that it really gives a political piece to this. And I think that one of the reasons Canada is the first country that um, codifies multiculturalism into law. And it does so in this very interesting context where, you know, you have the, the, the two nations thesis. There's like uh, French Canada and, um, and uh, British Canada, and they're trying to like resolve those into one identity. There are struggles of First Nations people who want a seat at the table. Um, the concept of multiculturalism is really inflamed at that time. And because it emerges in Canada earlier than other places, you have uh, that it both becomes demonized by the right wing as like, oh, there are all these like, there's a, people who are tearing Can- Canadian identity apart. Um, and we need like a thick, a unitary national identity and that becomes a very convenient prop for the right. And then from the left, the critiques of multiculturalism happen earlier in Canada, which is that like, there are these very substantial claims being made for indigenous rights and material struggles of people being dispossessed of their land, fighting for their treaty rights and, and, and so on. Multiculturalism in that context becomes read as this kind of deflection onto the cultural terrain where it's like, if we just celebrate people's cultures, then, then that sort of is abandoned over the world and it sort of deflects the conversation away from, from some of the other struggles. So um, I think that that is a very important 
um, part of the conversation about how, like, actually the attempt of a kind of a liberal political culture to deflect some of its critics by incorporating um, purely cultural forms of recognition that uh, incorporate symbolic gestures of atonement and so on becomes the subject of a robust left-wing critique in an earlier period of time in Canada. And I, I think that that's, um, you know, obviously very germane to why we had this tremendous acceleration of the conversation in the United States about the end of Obama's second term here, when I think mm-hmm. that people invested the idea of a black president with tremendous, with tremendous optimism that it would move the needle forward on racial justice. And then the limits of that, you know, became, became, um, became visible about, mm-hmm. uh, to people. And then um, the cultural appropriation conversation sort of emerges, explodes out of some of those, some of those um, disappointments. I mean, thinking again about sort of the craftsmanship of these essays, this might be a flat-footed question, but some of these precedents that you're bringing to bear are not immediately obvious to me. I mean, it was hugely educational, um, even that chapter on cultural appropriation, for me to be seated back in some of those historical um, nodes. And so I wonder, how do you, as you're writing, as you're researching, uh, parse out what is obvious and what is not? Um, you know, especially when you, <laughs> as, as we're sort of drawing these larger and larger circles around particular flashpoints in the contemporary moment, what, what do you include and what do you chalk up to? Well, that's research that other people need to be doing for themselves. <laughs> I think that there are obvious things that need to be just restated constantly. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think, you know, originality is an artistic virtue, not necessarily a political virtue. Um, I think there's a theme or at least sort of a, a traveling line in the book around um, uh, social realism and contemporary arts um, re-embrace of figuration and ideology to those ends. And I wonder about this quote that surfaced a couple months ago from Toby Hazlitt. He was interviewed by The Point magazine. And I'll just read part of this to you. I'm sure you're familiar with it because it did um, sort of go viral in our circles. But he says, what are we exhausted with? Where did this twee McCarthyism come from? You're an American. This is, sorry, I should back the quote up a little bit. Um, Toby's pointing to a certain kind of critic, sometimes very established, who is invested in displaying their exhaustion with politically inflected art. And he says, you grew up middle class in the most Philistine capitalist state there has ever been, but you're acting like you were raised on a diet of socialist realism and state radio broadcasts. Your closest closest experience to agitprop is Sesame Street. Your fatigue is so unearned and I can't stand it. So pointing to a kind of neo-aestheticist boredom with social critique, your line around this seems to be more tolerating and optimistic. Um, but yeah, I wonder how that strikes you as a, as a, as a critique. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I'm not so dismissive of the fatigue as he is because, mm-hmm. because I think even taking the most cynical read, which is that there are a lot of like very established kind of people who are being critiqued by in new ways, by Twib on, online, you know, who get a lot of static for being stodgy and so on. I see a lot of it as, as that kind of posture of fatigue is like a very canny finger to the wind thing that they, mm. I think we are in a backlash moment. I think mm-hmm. that uh, 
the last five years, like I say, I don't think it's a very satisfying politicization of culture, but there has been like a mainstreaming of certain activist postures to the point that they've been like hollowed out a little bit by advertising and 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 certain forms of cultural production that, you know, do uh, present themselves as, you know, that 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 you create like a luxury luxury object discourse around social justice, you're going to get a lot of going to get a lot of cynicism around it. So I think that there's a a lot of people are reading the room, essentially, that there is a popular, a much larger backlash that we ought to be prepared for. I mean, again, this goes back to the whole Mm -hmm. um, Brazil example. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, there has been a left discourse that has really, um, turned in on itself and is isolated, is not bringing in new people the way it was um, two, mm-hmm. two years ago, is on its back foot. And I don't see it as productive, just like press on and be like, yes, we have been doing the right thing. And is oh, we have only conservative op-ed writers at the New York Times to blame. I mean, there is an, there are an awful lot of people who um, haven't found the political conversation satisfying. And there, is, and there are like ideological op- entrepreneurs entering into that spot. And some of my book tries to provide the basis to criticize some of the ways that political discourse has unfolded in the last few years, hopefully without um, sounding like that kind of uh, fatigue that um, Toby Hazlitt is talking about there. But I do think you need a critique of it. I mean, when people talk about, I mean, I'll give you an example, the cancel culture conversation. I mean, I think it's a huge mistake to dismiss it because people will say you know like, oh this is just like people big enough to have platforms um where they could be canceled who are kind of talking you know talking about how they can't you know tell sexist jokes like they used to be able to and that is certainly true of one aspect to it but it has a huge traction because being online in a, as a contemporary person there's a tremendous amount of just negative static you pick up I means mm-hmm. any person online will have experienced a certain degree of just like negativity and like an- angst that comes from that position of having it's like it, it, i think it feels to a lot of people like you know ha- having your head um stuck into a hive of bees being online um that's not a minority position that's not that's mm-hmm. a that's a that's an awful lot of people feel that way so to just be like we can not engage with the cancel culture critique at all, that there is no problem here. That's a mistake because you're taking an entire pile of negative emotions and you're just, you're just letting other people run away with, with it. You know? So that when people look up critiques of, you know, why, do, why, why does it feel so bad now? <laughs> you know, why, then the people they find are, you know, conservative mm-hmm. voices. And I, I, I think that, you know, the uh, real like, left project can and should have a lot more to say about that than just like nothing to see here. Yeah, that's all very well stacked up. I mean, on that note, this is a a, a book of essays that is so actively um, responding that you could have pushed it off, I think probably indefinitely, the kind of pinching off point where you commit this to to printed matter. I mean, you could have let this molt a little longer. How do you? How did you decide when to strike? I, I know it's been in production for a long time. I think my, um, you know, the cultural conversation changed very rapidly again last year with the rise of NFTs, and yeah. I have a big insecurity about whether or not there should be a chapter in there about that. But I don't think I'm ready to say like the final word on what I think about that. Um, I, I do think that technology is a theme in the book. 
one of the challenges technological conversations have for art is that art is actually a very enduring form of technology. I mean, there are changes and so on, but if you're talking about painting or 3D sculpture, like there, you know, you can expect these to have a certain, you're, by definition, you're entering into a tradition. So you have like, mm-hmm. you can appeal to a tradition, like hold together a conversation into the future. Artists or critics who engage more directly with technology, you're putting yourself at the mercy of platforms that are incredibly mercurial and are designed mm-hmm. to turn over super, 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 super fast. Um, so uh, that presents a real problem um, aesthetically and critically because uh, it's not, you have much less of a, a, of a static target for to shoot at. I'm really proud of my chapter on artificial intelligence in this book, but you know, it, it's, that conversation is moving really, really fast. Um, and yeah, again, it's, whether it's moving too fast to, to pin down is another one of my insecurities about the book. <laughs> well, I, I remember standing, you know, in a kitchen at a house party with you a couple of years ago, where you, right before the pandemic, actually, where you said that you were reflecting back on 9.5 theses on art and class as being a book that didn't to your mind, you know, stay relevant enough, long enough. And and I was resisting that assessment completely. It's a book I could continue to revisit in my mind and um, and quite literally. And I also think I, I would just, I would also just want to draw a line under a, a comment that you made in an interview recently about a lot of art being for right now. And that that is, a, if that's a if that's all it does to motivate or move someone in the present, that's okay. That's it doing its job yeah. well, actually. I would say the yeah. same for this that's book of essays. Very true. I want to talk a little bit about writing, um, how you juggle writing uh, with a very much full-time job as a national art critic and editor at Artnet News. I think a lot of our listeners who are writers are um, balancing that uh occupation against any number of others. And I know personally as an editor in the last couple of years, writers are kind of flashing like broken clocks from time to time, you know, sort of just dropping right off the schedule because it's not the thing that, um, well, is well enough supported and, uh, you know, is psychically even sustainable in times of crises. Um, but I, yeah, I guess I have a few questions about how this works for you. But just to start, how how did you eke out the time for the writing and the psychic space, especially in the thick of the last couple of years? I'm very lucky that I have um, a job where I, I, I do write about art um, for a magazine. That's really rare. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so to a certain extent, that that keeps me in the mix, Um in the nine to five, you know, there, there are, there are, there are parts of this book that, you know, started out as essays for Artnet, Artnet News and as, um, yeah, responding to whatever the crisis of the day was or trying to sum up, sum up a year, but there's not a super easy answer to how then you go, you turn the ship around when you log off and then log back on again to, to write a book. I mean, the answer is it's just very depressing. It's a very depressing and long process that I think you know resembles depression in the psychoanalytic sense. Is that you feel <laughs> for a long period of time you have this giant object, inexpressible, inexpressible presence in your life that hangs over you like a dark cloud, and and um, and I I don't have like uh, 
a life hack around that, except to say that I think it really helps to believe in what you're doing. The world is very, you know, upsetting and, and there's a lot going on that demands time and attention that, um, that calls you away from writing, um, aside from just the demands of, you know, having a whole human life and, you know, taking care of your partner and, and seeing your friends and all that stuff. But there's lots of, you know, immediate and urgent, uh, organizing causes to go to and be a part of. And, um, I, I, I do hope that this book like does something, you know, that it, it contributes to helping, you know, ease some of the, ease some of the tensions, um, or clarify some of the problems that make, that make some of the, um, political stuff feel so intractable and dire. You know, I think it's contribution probably modest because, you know, art is a very modest good. Um, but, but I do think that there are things that I find of value in thinking about art that, that I want to make a case for. And there are, um, theoretical perspectives. You know, I think there's a whole chapter, um, that really grows out of the last book, 9.5 Thesis on Art for Class, which talked about the class position of the artist and mm-hmm. how that shapes the kind of audience that artists are, are drawn to. The artists tend to, you know, be small entrepreneurs who are drawn into being artists precisely because they get to control the content of their creative labor in a way that you don't, if you're um, selling your labor um, to somebody else, and that that has real strengths in terms of the kind of freedom of movement that those kind of um, figures can have, but also limits in terms of like it channels people in a very individualistic forms of activism and protest um that's 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 you know can have real consequences if you believe that struggle is collective and and that change Mm -hmm. um leads to a large number of of people in different cultural backgrounds who are not going to be they're probably going to transcend any one artistic vision um in any case i i think that that you know i think that perspective was very interesting and what i really considered the most um, important intervention in 9.5 pieces in art and class. I really think that one of the pathologies of the of the recent political conversation has come out of the way that that sort of cultural dilemma, the kind of cultural position of the of the solo cultural entrepreneur, has been generalized in the age of the internet. People are really detached mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. institutions, and everyone mm-hmm. becomes kind of individual communications entrepreneur and then when you overlay those incentives to like differentiate your brand from other people um and this happens unconsciously and unconsciously uh overlay that with like a political project i think it explains some of the splintering quality and that kind of uh, acrimony that you get there's a very real incentive towards like people treating each other as rivals for audience attention and resources yeah. when every, everything was filtered through, through um, yeah. this kind of hyper-individualized uh, media and creative ecosystem. I'd like to get into some rapid questions just before uh, I overextend you here. Um, these are to do with writing. It would be great if you could sort of answer off the cuff um, and uh, sort of instinctually. 
Okay, the first one is, do you like writing? Yes, love writing. You do? That's a rare response, actually. Oh, yeah, no, I, 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 love, I love the process of writing. I mean, it's, it's labor, but there's nothing more beautiful than a downhill slope of a piece of writing. When, you know <laughs> when, you, when you've basically written it twice, you've yeah. written it once, erased it, written it again, and now right. you know how it begins and ends, and you're just in the process where you're, where you're um, fixing the nuts and bolts, you know, you're just smoothing it over, like fixing it, the connectors, adding in the examples that feel right, uh, sharpening your metaphors. Like, there's nothing that that feeling is, like you're on a bike going downhill um, and the mentor, momentum is with you is really beautiful. Yes. Yeah. That's well said. When do you write? Uh, I write best at night. During the day, my attention gets too cut up into little pieces. And it, it, I write best when everyone else is asleep so that you can get into the kind of deep focus. Part. You know, a big piece of writing is like a, is like a real marathon. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, not terribly pleasant, although there's a kind of euphoria to it when you're 4 a.m. Um, and you know something's going up at 6 a.m. Just <laughs> got to get to the point where this one important thing you're trying to say that you're really worried about is going to make sense. This will probably depend on if we're talking about the work you're doing online or in essay form, but who do you write for? Good question. Well, I don't think there's a one answer to that. I always used to think it was artists, people who are here for a conversation that's slightly above the, the most general level of interest. This book is pretty specifically uh, written for two audiences. I hope that artists are interested in it and that it does something for our people who are trying to navigate the recent past. And then I hope that it also finds a audience that's it's a little bit more of a lefty activist audience and sees maybe some of the uh, cultural debates from afar and doesn't know what to make of them, but also is engaged with culture in like a, a wider sense of culture that, uh, in the streets, culture is the glue that keeps communities together. Hopefully it has both those audiences in some kind of combination. Do you ever write under the influence? <laughs> no. I, I I don't. Uh, the influence of tea, maybe. Uh, a lot of green tea. <laughs> Do you read or write in other languages? I read Spanish. I would never write Spanish. The resources that another language, even my poor Spanish, opens up for you in terms of like, oh, you know, there's these metaphors that uh, you, you don't have access to in English is a beautiful thing. Which writer, dead or alive, would you most like to have a drink with? Probably John Berger, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, someone who I, I probably had the chance to meet and never got it together to write him an email. And someone who I don't think I even really read until after my last book was published and then was very mm -hmm. excited by what I found in his writing and I've always found that when I read the negative writing about him, you know, not, he's not, um, you know, he occupies a very eccentric place in the cosmos of art theorists, thinkers about art, Marxist culture writers. Um, when I read the criticisms of him, I always think like, I hope that's how people criticize me. 
Really? I, I hope that the things people find distasteful about his writing or, or like don't like, and those are the things I hope they, they, they also don't like. <laughs> really? Like what's an example? Can you think of a, a term that's been used? There's an idea that he was not engaging at a high enough level. There are these like debates within Marxism that he wasn't engaging with. And I just always think like, yeah, those are, those are, those are for wonks, you know? I mean, that is not the audience I'm writing for. People talk about him as being um, like pitched towards like a popular audience. People think that the way he likes art is unsophisticated, you know, mm. because a certain kind of tradition of Marxist criticism, you know, like uh, your, your Theodore Adorno or something, are they avant-gardists uh, in the hardcore sense, are very critical of classical art. But I think it's much more useful to think about things as like, you have a passion and you also have a particular political story you want to tell about the world. And it's more useful to be like, if you share this political passion, people like you also have political thoughts. And those mm-hmm. politi- that political thoughts are not inhospitable to people like you. And I think that that was his project in the big sense of things. It was a great text that was published after he died that he wrote in like 1957. I think he was like something like 28 years old. Oh, wow. uh, and it's it's really is like a, a series of articles for art review where people presented their critical program and what he presented just lays out everything that's good about his writing in in the future in this very like clear way all these things that people criticize him for these are things that were like very consciously in his thought he's doing more as a storyteller like I'm, than than as like a theorist and i, I think that mm. Something kind of beautiful. I'm really glad we got to that uh, point in terms of how to orient you and and understand what it is you're looking to communicate and and who to. The last question I would put to you for today is what is the pleasure of writing? What's the pleasure of writing? Well, I'm not sure there's one one kind of pleasure. You know, writing's a Swiss Army knife and not um, a hammer. So, um, I think, I think, um, I, I, this instrumental aspect, I mean, I, I think that we responding to things in the world, trying to be part of a useful conversation, um, trying to advance the discussion. There is a aspect that's just the pure pleasure of tinkering with words or like, and so on. And I, I do nerd out over that. I mean, um, appreciate good writing and then it's just the the pleasure of having communicated you know and the um the exhilaration of in the process of formulating your own thoughts and having your editors and people you work with like help you clarify those thoughts like arriving at a better knowledge of what you think and sharing that with people and hearing that how that engage it, how, how other people engage with that is, 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 is a beautiful, is a beautiful thing. And then the, I guess there's finally sort of as a subset of that, like the incredible, um, strange thing when, um, something you've written, written comes back to you through in, in someone else's, you know, someone, something from something you've written and 
has mm-hmm. made something in their mind or in their writing of it um, that's not mm-hmm. what you expected. That it's, that 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 again, you know, changes. You realize, you know, that the piece of writing is is bigger than you again, and mm-hmm. and has this like its own that lives with people's and other people's lives. Like that's that's also that's also a real joy. Um, yeah, doesn't happen a lot. I mean, you used to be surprised. Well, not you'd be surprised. You know, it's like it's lonely um, behind the screen, and um, and people don't. Uh, I, I do. I try and compliment people when when I. You know, I, I try and compliment people. Um, I don't think there's enough, uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes. You know, I, I don't think there's enough. Um, yeah. Reading is work, just like writing is. And yeah. I, I think people are overworked, so people don't read as much as possible. Um, when yes. I have time in my life, I like to try and read everything, to read what's yeah. out there. And when you find stuff that you like, I, I like to tell people because I don't yeah. think people do that enough. I think the lack that lack of like cross conversation um, is a problem. You know, I think it, I agree. It, 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 the art is um, a, a means of communicating with each other. People are part of it to be because they're part of like an imagined community. And without that kind of you know, just mm-hmm. hey, I read this. Here's what I liked about it. Here's what I disagree with that. It is um, here's the kind of conversation I want to have with you about it that kind of conversation, you, you, you don't have much left. You know, you have a pretty shitty industry essentially that's just yeah. runs on a lot of, on a lot of, um, on a lot of self delusion and overwork. That's a really solid point to close things out on. And to be reminded, um, first of all, the, the work of reading, which is something I've like built into the job definitions of our associate editors. It's like be spending 40% awesome. of your time reading, you know, and please count those hours towards your invoicing because it matters so, so much that we are. And, um, and yeah, the, the power of, of reaching out to those writers who move you. Um, even to thinking that, you know, you're not entirely comfortable with. It's, it's such an important uh, and overlooked part of how we form community. Yeah, you, you'd be surprised how much it means. Even, it's like I said, you know, the, the best critical experience I've had when you write something, but then that, you know, it's like, oh, but I can tell you read that, you know? Mm-hmm. I can tell you actually like mm-hmm. research what I was interested in. You, you didn't just read the press release and bounce it back to me. And then, you know, most writers feel the same way. Like no one really reads what they do, you know. Yeah. They, they take yeah. away some vibes, your feelings. Um, and, you know, it's a little thing. It's an important thing. Yeah. Well, Ben, I enjoyed your book so much. And I'm really grateful to have a chance to shed some light on the work that you've done here. Ah, I'm so honored that you took the time to read it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Ben Davis for his contribution to this season, and special thanks to SFU Galleries for their support. You can find us at patreon.com backslash art or contact me directly about making a one-time donation at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 40 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>